Okay, good morning. And we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word. It comes from Galatians chapter 4 this morning, the first seven verses. Galatians 4, the first seven verses. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no longer different from a slave, though he is owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Verses 4 and 5 again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. May God bless his word. Please be seated. This is the first of three uh, Advent messages I'll be giving. Uh, this one from Galatians, the next two, and the next two Sundays will be from John chapter 1. I've entitled this morning, Is It Christmas Yet? <clears throat> While our family enjoys the Christmas season, we don't always celebrate the way much of the world celebrates. We do exchange gifts. We have a grandson, Timothy. You might not have known that. Uh, he'll be five the end of this month, and since early November, he's been asking the question, is it Christmas yet? And we try to explain to him, yes, Christmas is coming, but it's not Christmas yet. And as he sees more and more things, uh, the decorations, and hears more and more about the season, he keeps asking the question, is it Christmas yet? Our text today answers that question. The Bible refers to it as the fullness of time. In the right time, Timothy, it will be Christmas. And God has set and established a time for the coming of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you doze off during the message, just remember the first words I'm saying. God's timing is always perfect. Now, don't doze off, but in case you do... Remember that at the end. God's timing is always perfect. He's never a moment early. He's never a moment late. The fullness of time. When every word of prophecy that needed to be spoken had been spoken, when every word of prophecy that needed to be fulfilled for his birth was fulfilled, no prophecy was left unfilled. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son. God, in harmony with his character, moved by grace, informed by his omniscience, sent his son, eternal, majestic, sovereign, sinless son, just at the right time. When the fullness of time came, God sent his son in order that he might redeem us. A father had called an impromptu meeting of his family, and he said, 
Christmas is going to be different this year. He challenged his children to watch how much they spent, how they spent their time, how they talked to each other, how they helped around the house. And he gave them this rousing speech about Christmas is going to be different this year. Are there any questions? This little second grade boy raised his hand and said, Dad, I don't see how we can improve on the first Christmas. How do you improve on the first Christmas? When a virgin teenager named Mary gave birth to the infant Jesus, how can you improve on the first Christmas when a star led the Magi for several months from the east to the birthplace of Jesus where they could worship him and bring their gifts? How can you improve on the first Christmas when King Herod went into a rage hearing that a king had been born? How can you improve on the first Christmas when the angels proclaimed to the group of shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill toward men? How can you improve on the first Christmas when all the necessary prophecies have been fulfilled? I submit to you that no matter how good the gifts you get, nor how good the gifts you give, no matter how good the food you enjoy, no matter how rich the fellowship we have with one another, these can never measure up to that first Christmas game when the Virgin Mary gave birth to her son. In fact, our celebration of Christmas will be somewhat meaningless if it does not flow from our understanding of faith in and gratitude for what happened that first Christmas day. The good news of Christmas is inseparably tied to the incarnation of our Lord. The incarnation is explained here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. When the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. These two verses give us four aspects of the good news of the incarnation. The incarnation means enfleshing. God became flesh. He became one of us. He had flesh and blood while remaining deity. He was holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy God, and he was W-H-O-L-L, holy man. While he was holy, he was also completely God, completely man. First, the timing of the incarnation. The first promise of the coming of our Lord Jesus can be traced back to the book of Genesis. After Adam and Eve had sinned, and speaking to the serpent after the fall, God said in Genesis 3, 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. It's all singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Centuries later, we heard about it just a few weeks ago from the rabbi in Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham that he would have a son and through that son, all the descendants of the earth would be blessed. Several generations, the uh, promise came. In Genesis 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Remember? Jesus, the tribe, the lion of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes, until the gathering or the obedience of the people. And then over in 2 Samuel, King David, we hear David's name an awful lot this time of the year. 
We heard it in the reading this morning. Joseph, the son of David. He wasn't the son of David, but he was in that lineage. So the promise was given to David that one day David would have a son who would sit on the throne and reign forever and ever. Now he can sit on the throne of our hearts, and one day he will sit on the throne of the entire universe reigning. That day would come. The Jews knew these prophecies. They may not have fully understood them. In fact, they understood the, the prophecy of Daniel. Daniel was given insight to the exact time when Christ would come. 483 years after a certain proclamation was given, it was told that the Messiah would come. The Jews knew these prophecies. They may not have understood them or how to apply them, but they, when Jesus came, there was a great desire, a great expectation about Messiah. There was actually a messianic fever growing at that time. When we reached the end of the Old Testament, the promise had not yet been fulfilled. In fact, between the end of the Old Testament, Malachi, and the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, 400 years of silence. When the ministry of John the baptizer began, there had not been a prophetic voice for over 400 years. When Jesus came on the scene, the Jews who were under Roman occupation wanted to get free of the Roman occupation, they were desperate for the arrival of a Messiah. We look at it from a human viewpoint and say, why did God wait so long? Why did he wait so long? Why did he delay? Galatians answers that. But when the fullness of time had come, at God's right time. From the human viewpoint, it wasn't a bad time for Messiah to come. Religiously, the Jews possessed all of the scrolls. All of the scrolls, all of the prophecies were available to them. They could go and read and find out about the prophecies of the Old Testament. There were synagogues in all the major cities of the world where they could come and study the word of God. And eventually through the synagogues, the gospel was proclaimed. Culturally, there was a common language. It was a good time. Everyone spoke basically the same language or understood the same language. Politically, remember from school, Pax Romana? Roman peace. There was Roman peace all over. There were good roads, uh, ease of travel to spread the word of God. So humanly, it was a good time. But the birth of Christ was more than human factors. The incarnation, the enfleshing of Jesus becoming one with us, took place according to God's sovereign timing, his providential orchestration, and the perfect schedule of God. Christ was born in the fullness of time. He probably wasn't born on December 25th. But we choose one date and we make it our date and we celebrate that and that's absolutely fine. But we do know his birth was so important that all of history was split into two, two sections. B.C. and A.D. before Christ. He is the hinge of all of history. Jesus came. He came at the intersection of earth and heaven and eternity. He's the meeting place of time and eternity. The Bible informs us that he invaded history in the fullness of time, in the right time, the appointed time. It was the prophetic fulfillment. The New Testament has two major concepts of time. The word chronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S. Chronology, you're familiar with that. Time, dates, plans, sequential things. Things happen in sequence. 
And then there's the word in the New Testament, kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. Kairos, to me, is time and eternity intersecting. When time and eternity intersect, it's the right time. It's the right occasion. It's the appointed time. Throughout the Gospel of John, and we'll be in Gospel of John for the next two weeks, you hear Jesus saying, my aura, my hour has not yet come. It's not my time. You go to the uh, final Passover in the book of Matthew, and Jesus, just before the cross, said, my kairos has come. So you see, there's God's time. There's our time, and there's God's time. In the fullness of time, God sent his son into the world. The incarnation was no last-minute fix because God said, oh, my, I created man, and he messed up. What are we going to do now? He had it all worked out before. In the fullness of time, God worked it out. It was not a hastily thrown-together, last-minute plan. Well, well, Jesus, maybe you can go down there and redeem those people. They messed it up, you know. It was all worked out. The first part of the good news proclaimed in the incarnation is that God's timing is perfect. For God, there is no such thing as accident. Things just don't happen. And he underscores this ultimately by sending his son in the fullness of time. And let me put a footnote in here. Jesus is coming again. And he's coming again in the fullness of time. There are some days I do pray, come Lord, come Lord quickly. But he's going to come at just the right time, in the fullness of time. Peter says, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some men consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not wanting that any should perish, but all should repent. Jesus is coming again in the fullness of time. So the timing of the incarnation is good news. God knows what he's doing. Secondly, the source of the incarnation is good news. Note here in verse 5, the central clause. It tells us God sent his son. Can you think of a better message? God sent his son. The phrase that uh, for sent his son is to uh, commission somebody, to send him forth on a commission. God the Father commissioned the Son to come just at the right time, and his commission was to seek and to save that which was lost. A commission to come to us, to speak of the incarnation. He came with a commission. God sent forth his Son. And that tells us the Son was preexistent. He existed before his birth. We didn't exist before our birth, but the Lord Jesus Christ existed before his birth. He is co-equal, co-eternal with God. When a Savior was needed as a substitute for man, God sent his Son. We all know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only... He gave. He sent his only Son. When a Savior was needed, he supplied what was needed. He gave his best. He gave his only son, all he had. And it was all planned before creation. <clears throat> See, God just didn't send Abraham or Isaac or Jacob 
or Moses or Joshua or David or Solomon or Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel. He sent his best, his only son. Because only the son was qualified. Only the son could redeem us. First John um, chapter 4, verse 9 says, In this the love of God was made known among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's all about God's love. God's love coming toward us in the fullness of time. The timing of the incarnation was perfect. The source of the incarnation is good news. Thirdly, the manner of the incarnation is good news. In the incarnation, God declared his love for us. He spoke a language that we could understand. Have you ever been in a group of people who speak another language? My in-laws can speak Ukrainian. And I always thought, I wonder if they're talking about me. <laughs> And then I'd hear the word vain. Oh, they're talking about me. <laughs> God spoke a language we could understand. He did so by becoming one of us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law. Think about that. God sent his son. can only be said about one person. But notice the phrase. Born of a woman. Isn't that curious? Who here was not born of a woman? He's telling us that he's divine and he's human. God sent his best, but his best identified with us. He became one with us, more than a man, the eternal son of God, undivided trinity, but he took on humanity. He suffered. He was tempted. He did all the things that human beings do. Philippians 2 said, Having this mind, have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he was very God of very God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation. Taking on the form of a servant, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Last week we heard about, unto us a child is born, humanity. Unto us a son is given, the deity. Not only does the Bible teach us that this Jesus is God, it teaches that he was human, he was born, he grew, he lived, he ate, he drank, he slept, he was tempted, he bled, he died, yet he was raised again and coming again. He was not some phantom deity, but he was real. He appeared in the flesh. Jesus was just as human as we are. He had to learn to walk as a baby. He had to learn to talk, to dress himself, to do all the things that humanity does. And fourthly, the purpose of the incarnation is good news. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. So the incarnation is essential to salvation because it affirms the divine person and the work. We must not forget the hope of salvation rests on the person 
and work of Jesus. You see, salvation is not centered in Bethlehem. It's centered in Calvary. Without Bethlehem, we don't have the... But the central point is Calvary for Christianity. We praise God for the, the virgin birth. We praise God for the wonderful teachings of Jesus. We praise God that he lived a sinless life. We praise God for the wonderful miracles that he did, the moral example. But these would have been of no avail without Calvary. And so he's always got to link the incarnation to Calvary. And so I want to move us on to verse 5 of Galatians 4. Galatians 4 tells us of the timing, the source, the manner. Verse 5 tells us the purpose. And there's a twofold purpose here. First, redemption of sins. It tells us the incarnation happened to redeem those who were under the law. Every man and woman born under the law. Redeem means to be released from slavery, to pay the ransom price. It's an economic term, a powerful term in New Testament times. Jesus over in John 8, 34 said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. That's every one of us. We were slaves to sin. Sin is a bondage from which we cannot free ourselves. Without a redeemer, there's no redemption. Jesus goes on to say, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The Son remains forever. When the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Someone should say amen. As the Son has set you free this morning, you are free indeed. The world thinks Christians are in bondage. Those Christians, <laughs> they go to church. They give money to the church. They don't have a lot of fun. Little do they know. Because uh, they're the ones who are in bondage. We are the ones who have been set free. Whom the Son sets free shall be free indeed. Taken away from the bondage to sin. We are free. We are free to be all that God wants us to be in Christ Jesus. Free indeed. The only way someone can avoid the holy wrath of God and eternal judgment is if the Son sets them free. We can't do it on our own. Jesus was born with an assignment, with a commission from the Father to go into the world to bring redemption and to set people free from the bondage of sin. Colossians 1 tells us, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He has transferred us into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of His dear Son. The domain of darkness to the kingdom of light. First Peter tells us, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot, the purchase price of redemption for our sin was his blood. He stood before God with all of our sin on him, that we might stand before God with none of our sins. Do you Understand that this morning a little bit? We can stand before a holy God, not because of who we are, because he took all of our sin. And if you're here in the bondage of sin this morning or something's bothering you or hasn't been confessed, get it taken care of so you're right with God. He who was righteous was judged unrighteous that we who are 
unrighteous should be judged before God as righteous. God sees us as sinless this morning. He sees us as righteous. At Calvary, Jesus paid a debt that he did not owe. For us who owed a debt, we could not pay. On that cross, Jesus was treated as if he had committed all of our sins. So he could treat us as if we had practiced all of the righteousness of Christ. What an exchange. Some of you will make exchanges on the 26th of December. This exchange is going to be them all. The wonderful exchange that we have in Calvary. And then, secondly, here we see in that, this verse, we are adopted as sons. We are redeemed from the bondage of sin, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. We are redeemed unto the adoption of sons so that we might receive, verse 5 says, adoption as sons. A man would redeem a slave for one of two reasons, either to set him free or to enslave him. But a man would never redeem a, son, a slave to make him an heir. But the Bible says now we're heirs. Heirs of Jesus Christ. That's the good news of the incarnation. He came at the right time. He came sent by God. He came to make us sons of God. God dispatched his son to the marketplace to set us free, to redeem us. The moment we're saved, the moment we become into Christ through repentance and faith, we become sons. John chapter 1 tells us, but to all who receive him, who believed in his name, to them he gave the right, he gave the authority to become the Children of God, the sons of God, not born of flesh. That's our first birth, but there's a second birth. Nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God's work in us. Now, don't confuse adoption and redemption here. Being born again, being redeemed is the act of the Holy Spirit who quickens us, who wakens our dead. We're dead in our trespasses and sin until we're awakened and we're made alive to Christ. It's a radical change that comes. We can uh, repent, receive the gospel, but adoption is our relationship that we now enjoy. Regeneration, adoption. Adopted into God's family, we are adopted as sons. When I say sons, you know, sons and daughters, you understand, biblically, what I was speaking of. Uh, we are an heir. And verse 1 to 3 says, I mean an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, when we were children, we were enslaved to the principles of this world. But when the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. He puts us the place is his sons. He makes you an heir, and a joint heir. He gives us access to the riches of grace and the riches of the kingdom of God. Adoption in biblical times is different than it is today. We kind of think of taking somebody from outside the family and bringing them into the family. Well, that's partially it, but the New Testament word here is two words together. It means son placing. He redeems us, and then he places us as adult sons with all the rights and privileges 
We're not little children. We're placed as adult sons, no longer under the law. Christ perfectly kept the law, and then on the cross freed us from the curse of the law. There's one other word here in the text I'd like to point out. It's that we receive the adoption as sons. We're not forgiven because we deserve it. None of us deserve it. We're not saved because we work for it. We could never work hard enough or do enough. We're not redeemed because we earned it. Independent of any good works we do, God adopts us through Jesus Christ and the good news of the incarnation. And all we do is receive it by faith, what God has done. Yes, Timothy, there is a Christmas. And yes, it will come at the right time. And then on Christmas morning, Timothy will come to our house and we will have gifts under the tree. And he will say, is it a present? And we'll say, yes, Timothy, it's a present. And then he will say, is it for me? That's his, that's his dialogue. Yes, there's a gift for each of us. God has made a wonderful gift. If you know it, revel in it this morning. If you don't know it, we invite you to come to know that gift, to receive that gift in a personal way, because it's a gift. And yes, it's for you. Billy Sunday, the great evangelist of a century ago, was helping workers take down the tent after a meeting, when they had tent meetings. A young man came running up out of breath and said, I wanted to come to the revival, but I missed the meeting. Please tell me, what must I do to be saved? Billy Sunday said, you're too late, and kept on taking down the tent. The young man said, just because I missed the meeting, you mean I'm too late? No, you're not too late, but you're too late to do anything. Jesus did it all 2,000 years ago. Now you have to receive it. I want to take you over to John chapter 11 as we begin to close. Begin to close. Mary and Martha had lost, their son, had lost their brother, Lazarus. Four days later, Jesus arrives on the scene. Isn't it amazing? Even when Jesus is four days late, he's just in time. Did you get that? Even when Jesus seems to be four days late, he says, I'm glad I wasn't here. He's just in time. Jesus came just in time. He's always on time. The birth of Jesus tells us that God remembered. 400 years, no word from heaven. It was as if God had been silent all that time. Many are sure thought God's forgotten us. Maybe there isn't a God. Some of you may feel that way this morning. Has God forgotten me? Maybe God doesn't hear my prayers. He hears others' prayers. He doesn't hear my prayers. Let me assure you, God hears. Our text says in the fullness of time, at the right time, not our time, in the right time, God sent forth his son. 
You see, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. If you're claiming a promise from God, hold on. Hold on to that promise. Even when it seems like he's four days late, Jesus is never late. Habakkuk 2 tells us, when you have a promise from God, though it tarry, wait for it. Surely it will come. Today is Sunday, December the 10th, the 345th day in Kronos time. Maybe you're living in Kronos time. Let's move to Kairos time, God's time. What is God's time for you? What is God doing? Well, we want things done in our time, on our schedule. He will meet you. He will fulfill his divine plan. Psalm 138, the Lord will work out his plan for your life. O Lord, your love endures forever. It will be done just at the right time. God has not forgotten you. God is never late. And he, what he promises, he will do. Is that simple enough? God's not forgotten you. God is never late. What he promises, he will do. Has he promised you salvation? Then it's yours. Has he promised you forgiveness? If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive. And that means he forgets it. There's no more remembrance of it. We may remember it. Don't, don't live there. God forgot it. Move ahead with what's been forgiven. Did he say, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age? No. And he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Well, I like that verse. You can, for, if you're dyslexic, you can read it backwards. Never leave thee nor forsake, will I. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. You can read it frontwards, you can read it backwards, but the promise is there. God never leaves, he never forsakes. Did he say, he who began a good work will complete it? And he's going to finish the work. And he's not going to be one minute late. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you have not forgotten us. We thank you this morning that you're never late. And we thank you that what you promise, you fulfill. So, Father, as your people today, we thank you for encouraging us through your word that you sent your son just at the right time. So we thank you for that salvation. We thank you, too, what you're doing in our lives. Everything is just working together in your divine will, in your divine purpose, in your divine plan. And we just want to have our our uh, strength and faith renewed, Lord, by believing that you are a God who's got it all planned out. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close together by worshiping in spirit and in truth, hopefully the truth that you heard this morning, that God has not forgotten you, God is never late, God does what he promises. That will be the truth. By the Holy Spirit, let's worship together his majesty, Jesus who died, now glorified, King of all kings. And then we'll close our service with our Advent song for the month, O Come, Let Us Adore Him. Mm -hmm.